0: Greetings. Hello, everyone. First of all, I want to thank you all for joining this podcast. And I really hope that all of you are doing well. Uh, we're living in, in some unprecedented times where a virus has wreaked havoc in all of our lives. And it has, of course, um, changed the way things uh, used to function. And I think perhaps... Uh, it will um, make an undeniable mark and undeniable imprint on our lives in the coming years too. So I personally feel that especially during these times when uh, we have so much misery and uh, so much, uh, you know, both economic, mental, physical crisis, it's, it's all there, right? So in these times especially, I I personally feel that the only thing that can keep us the only thing that can keep us connected to uh, our own primordial nature is uh, a spiritual path. And when we talk about a spiritual path, there are many things that we have to keep in mind. And uh, even before I started doing this podcast, I mean, it's anyway the very first episode that I'm going to uh, broadcast with all of you, I have been sharing my posts, on both Facebook and especially on Instagram with a lot of people and uh, I've received some good feedback which is exactly why I was compelled to uh, start a podcast. It was basically an advice given to me by a friend who um, said that perhaps people could benefit from such a venture. So for those of you who do not know me, I am Ankit. I am basically a journalist and uh, Before I begin speaking about the subject matter, which is um, Tantra, Tantric traditions, I want to clarify a few things. I do not see myself as a scholar. I am not a guru, definitely not. I do not consider myself as that. And my podcast, the aim of these podcasts will basically be to talk about certain key points that cover misconceptions about the path, um, history, you know, iconography. It's basically, uh, you know, something that I want to share, which I have discovered through my own travels, through my own personal uh, researches. So I first uh, developed an interest in the tantric traditions of India and basically the whole Indo-Tibetan, um, Indo-Himalayan regions from 2009 and nine and ten onwards when I studied uh, different streams of philosophy while in college. Um, I was studying arts and aesthetics and uh, I was introduced to uh, world philosophy, Indian philosophy, and that was when I first got my taste of uh, the different traditions that have spawned in India and other countries. But of course, um, the Indian traditions, the vast uh, streams of traditions from ancient times, They really enamored me. They really caught my attention. And from 2012-13 onwards, due to different circumstances, um, both personal and, you know, philosophical and existential, I felt that I need to take my search onto the next level. And I started traveling to uh, Himachal Pradesh in India. It's a state which um, is uh, blessed with not only nature, but uh, spirituality from... Ancient times, and it's also the home of the Tibetan, um, the Tibetan community in exile. Which means that a lot of uh, Tibetan tantric Buddhist monasteries have uh, set up their base in Himachal Pradesh. Um, They did so after they came to India in the early 1960s, and they were given the land by the then Indian government. And they were able to relocate, and they were able to bring back something that actually belonged to India but was lost in India in its original form. But I will come to that in some other podcasts. The main um, topic of the podcast that I'm going to broadcast today is basically to give a general overview about um, the different misconceptions that surround tantric practice in general, tantra, and uh, whatever that word means, and especially the colonial... Um, Abrahamic mindset that uh, kind of condemns Tantra and other such traditions because uh, due to this mindset uh, people are not able to exactly understand the core differences between an Abrahamic system and Abrahamic religious thought pattern and something that's completely different something that's more about non-duality which is more connected to the nature of the mind to um, to discover the true essence of who we really are. Um, and there is no such concept as an original sin or you know um, any such concepts that Abrahamic systems have. So to begin with, I mean I'm pretty sure that most of you who are even a little bit familiar about Tantra, one of the first things that come to your mind, or I would say one of the first associations that come to your mind. Um, is a deity like Kali or Shiva. I mean, they're all over the place, even before the internet came into being. I mean, you've seen them all. You've seen them in the Indiana Jones film. You've uh, seen some extremely weird interpretations of these deities. So there is something that, you know, it, it's, an, it's an enigma. It's, it's a mystique uh, of these deities that has kind of not only enamored Uh, I wouldn't say even enamored. It has kind of uh, made people curious. And this curiosity has not always been positive. And this is nothing new. Because if I talk about um, the British times of India, I mean, those of you who are familiar about India's history, I mean, the Britishers uh, were ruling India for close to 300 years. And uh, during that time, a lot of things changed in the socio-political and especially the religious uh, dynamic of the country where I was born. And in fact, the Britishers even uh, kind of imposed their morality, their ideas, the Abrahamic ideas, even upon the Indian religious sphere. And uh, that even transformed Indian religion completely. But even at the time when they first had the contact with Indian uh, deities, Indian traditions, and especially the cult of Kali, they were completely aghast. They were flummoxed. They couldn't understand what is going on. And because of their mindset, because of the mindset that condemns, in fact, all pagan religions to uh, devil worship, so a deity like Kali, which looks ferocious or dark skinned, and most importantly, it's a female deity, which is something that the Abrahamic paradigm is always going to shun. And so to see, for for them, Kali is no way pagan, let me remind you, but for them to look at a so-called pagan deity, which is wild, untamed, which are this heveled hair, her dark appearance, she is wearing a uh, uh, antinomian ornaments which includes a uh, whole garland of uh, human heads and she is holding different weapons so i can imagine that these people who came to india uh, during the you know 17th 18th century i'm talking about the very first contact they were definitely aghast because they could never in their wildest dreams imagine a religion with a deity like that and then also came to the point about the Thuggies, which has been also maligned uh, quite a lot, because Thuggies were a group of, you could say, outcasts, and they were uh, looters, um, they would um, steal things from people, and uh, you know they were kind of like a direct threat to the British themselves. So when the British encountered these Thuggies, you could say that they were kind of bandits, they were even more shocked to find out that the Tuggies basically were worshipping this deity, Kali, and that was it. I mean, for them, this was the uh, ultimate paradigm of evil. Like, she is the ultimate uh, personification of evil because these Tuggies, who were number one enemies of the British at that time, because uh, they themselves had this patriotic aspect that they were not willing to be um, suppressed by the British regime and they were operating at the margins of the society and then they were worshipping Kali. So this combination of factors definitely made Kali as an object of disgust, as an object of devil worship, perhaps a symbol of devil worship, I dare say, among uh, the British um, officers of that time and the general uh, British populace. In fact, uh, in the words of scholar Cynthia Humes, she reports that by the mid-century, the thuggy goddess and her minions had been reimagined as direct threats to the British themselves, and the tone was suffused with sexual and ethnic overtones. So this the wording of this uh, uh, statement can pretty much give you an idea. And this was only the beginning. So basically, when the British first encountered Kali and other deities like Shiva and other tantric deities of India, that is specifically these two, and especially Kali, they they were completely sure that we that they were dealing with a religion that is completely primitive, and uh, that it is basically black magic. Like they did not bother to dig deeper into the symbolism of this deity or what could the whole um, um, accoutrements that she has, each and every aspect of the deity, what it could perhaps mean. So they just did not decide to venture any deeper. They had their own prejudice and they basically kept on with that. And that is also one of the main reasons why the early Orientalists who started researching uh, Indian traditions or Tibetan traditions, they also came with the same prejudice because basically for them they were not able to get rid of their Abrahamic mindset while exploring a completely different, a completely new paradigm, religious paradigm. And the early Orientalist scholars who discovered Tantra traditions as a whole, like early 19th 19th or 20th century scholars, they completely relegated Tantra to a class of low black magic that uh, should not be dealt with at all, especially people who come from a more higher echelon of the society. And, But it was not only the British who uh, need to be blamed for this. In fact, because of... uh, a lot of reforms that were going on in India during that time and also due to different religious movements like the Bhakti movement uh, which took its foot in 13th-14th century which uh, completely removed any of the esoteric uh, ideas of uh, older Tantric traditions and kept it to a, a Bhakti, a completely devotional approach. Now, there's nothing wrong with devotion, don't get me wrong, but Bhakti movement basically separated the idea of divinity and man which is something the tantric tradition from the beginning from its genesis and let me remind you let me tell you that tantric tradition is not just confined to hinduism tantric tradition is very broad it is found in buddhism it is found in hinduism and i mean i personally even take a lot of concern for the term hinduism but if I have to even divide the different schools of thought that come within Hinduism, namely uh, Shaivism, the followers of Shiva, Shaktism, the followers of Mother Goddess, deities like Kali, Durga, etc. Vaishnavism, the devotees of Vishnu and his uh, cult, even uh, Ganapateyas, and there were many other schools of thought that developed within the broader Tantric paradigm. So Tantra is definitely not a monolithic tradition. This is something that is very important to understand. And a lot of these different schools of thought, even though they have their own Tantras, their soteriology, their philosophy, their metaphysics could be in fact very different to each other, although on surface it might all look similar to each other. But that is uh, something that I will uh, delve deeper into with my further podcasts. So basically, if I'm talking about like a general idea about Tantrism, so there have been a lot of uh, different theories about the genesis of Tantra. There are different uh, scholarly beliefs, there are hypotheses that perhaps Tantra was existing in the pre-Vedic societies of India, uh, the Aryan, the pre-Aryan traditions and uh, because they claim that a lot of the mother goddess worship and a lot of the sexual ideas that are present in tantras uh, perhaps hail from this ancient times uh, before the uh, the Vedic Aryans came and they settled down and they created their own uh, way of life and they created the Vedic uh, religion, which is more concerned with ritual purity and uh, tantra, on the other hand. especially in the later uh, stages, in the more higher stages, uh, may not necessarily deem ritual purity as something important because it is dealing more with the whole nature of reality, the nature of phenomena, where it questions our dualistic thought process, where it questions the way we look at things. Uh, the way we look at things in a very concrete manner. So a lot of these symbolism, which may seem uh, jarring, antinomian or dark from a more Western Abrahamic point of view, they basically are sort of tools that teach us to come to the point of non-duality where we do not distinguish between the pure and impure. But then this is at a very higher stage and this is not something that can be accomplished Instantaneously, that's why even those people who enter a tantric path, no matter which tradition, they take it step by step. And only after years of meditative practice and experience, they can reach at the level I mentioned previously. But coming back to the original point about tantra's misconceptions, especially in the Western school of thought, I mean, if I'm talking about how, uh, you know, the pop culture sees it, I mean, Indiana Jones completely denigrated um, the whole cult of Kali, and uh, people developed a very stereotypical idea of Kali, especially after that film. But even before that, as I was saying about the Orientalist uh, scholars, they at first... uh, completely denigrated the Tantras, whether it was Hindu Tantra or the Buddhist Tantra, mainly because of their own lack of understanding of uh, these deities. And then later on, um, Western occultism also incorporated a lot of um, ideas from Tantra, but they too did not completely understand things because to be able to understand or not only understand or comprehend in an intellectual way, but to delve deeper into the meditation and the rituals of any tantric paradigm, you need to be initiated into an authentic tradition and you need to have the guidance of a qualified guru. Now, this is something that the general Western um, scholastic idea condemns because it's more to do with individualism, basically. Now, this was also the problem with the orientalist scholars, that many of them they could have tried to access real teachers because many of them did study Sanskrit. Um, Many of them who uh, studied Tibetan Buddhism or Tibetan Tantric Buddhism to begin with, they also needed to study the language. But not everyone bothered to dig deeper into the actual practice tradition, the actual tradition that was living in their time too. And I say, this is my own personal idea, that this definitely created a big void in this early scholastic studies, because these scholars, they chose to project their own ideas upon a very ancient tradition, something that even like dates beyond, dates before um, the beginning of Abrahamic traditions. So it was their Abrahamic bias and their, Western superior outlook that completely made them feel certain that just by looking into texts or just by observing this tradition cursorily, they can completely have a grasp on it. And this problem is something that I want to address in this podcast. That basically, when we talk about any Indo-Tibetan or the pan-Indian Indian subcontinental tradition it's spawned here, not just tantras, even the Vedic tradition or the Upanishads or anything. Basically, we need to take the teachings from a guru. And it's not that the Western tradition did not have this concept. It definitely had in the ancient times. If you're talking about the Greek school or the Hermetic school, it's impossible to believe that they did not have a similar system to boot with. Of course, they did. But with time, with certain developments that took place, the whole idea about a pure lineage with successes from a guru who has mastered a specific teaching and has passed that on to his disciples, it steadily started declining and people were left mainly with bookish knowledge. And there is a big danger in that. Specifically if you are talking about traditions whose lineages finished off let's say centuries ago and you only have textual information and just to rely on textual information it may yield some results but it may not lead you to the ultimate truth now this is exactly what happens in all of the pan-indian traditions because why the guru is considered important because a guru is someone who is supposed to have internalized a specific teaching on his own and then be able to impart that to qualified disciples. And this ensures succession of the teaching. In fact, many of the ancient traditions, including Tantra, were oral traditions. They were not even committed to writing until very late. And this is also the hypothesis many scholars of Tantra believe in because there still is no general consensus about when and exactly we can trace the Tantric tradition. Uh, Certain Tantras started emerging from the 3rd, 4th, 5th century, but there is again a scholarly debate whether we can say that these Tantras appeared at that time or they were committed to writing at that time. So this should give us a very concrete picture of how the Indian traditions have functioned and they still do function. So this is where the idea of a guru, of what we call a parampara, a lineage comes into question. Without that, it's extremely easy to distort any teaching, not just Tantra, but especially Tantra. That's exactly why when we talk about a deity like Kali or Shiva, out of context of their own philosophical or metaphysical tenets, we are entering a very dangerous territory. And I have seen different... Western occult systems, wherein they try to incorporate a practice of Kali or a practice of Shiva, so to speak, but then they take these practices out of their original context and they try to incorporate that into their whole dualistic, Kabbalistic, or whatever system they are practicing with in that direction. That is very dangerous. And that is also where we see a lot of the problems that, especially if I talk about the uh, heavy metal or the Western uh, black metal, death metal uh, scene, because I'm sure that a lot of my listeners are coming from this background. There's a lot of misconceptions that are around that surround these deities because they've seen these deities from their uh, points of view. And then they compare a Lilith with a Kali or a Lucifer with a Shiva. It is dangerous and it serves no purpose because those traditions are independent in their own way. Lilith has her own philosophy to boot with. Lucifer has his own philosophy to boot with. So practitioners of this system, they can benefit with Indian or Indo-Tibetan tantric traditions for sure. But combining these deities serves no purpose. It's like you're diluting their essence by mixing them, by mixing disparate traditions so basically the whole reason why uh, I'm doing this podcast is also because I get a lot of questions quite frequently and even recently a uh, few months ago I think two months ago somebody on Instagram asked me certain questions and they were confused whether Kali or such deities were demons or demonesses and uh, I just did not simply know how to explain this to a person who is coming from a purely uh, Christian background who has uh, seen uh, a very different society and uh, a society that is dealing with the concept of a creator God and uh, where anything that kind of uh, is against the system is relegated to devil worship or satanism. So for these people, basically Kali or Shiva or any of the other deities, they are nothing but kind of satanic entities. But this is a very gross misinterpretation. And while uh, you know a lot of such ideas that are perpetuated by the early Oriented. Oriental scholars or the very unfortunate uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which sees, you know, lunatic Indians worshipping a bloodthirsty demoness. Uh, These are very unfortunate. And now in the 21st century, a lot of great scholarly research has been done into these traditions. And uh, interestingly, a lot of uh, scholars from the West from very reputed universities like Oxford and uh, even in Germany, they even have a, in Hamburg University, they have a Center for Tantric Studies. In the 21st century, there was a paradigm shift when Western scholars who are no longer under the influence of uh, Abrahamism or the earlier colonial beliefs, they realize the importance of Tantra. They realize what they can understand about the nature of reality, the nature of existence as such. And they made a U-turn and they came back to tantras and they started examining, or I shall say re-examining different tantric traditions in a completely new light. And many of them have even uh, consulted existing teachers, existing masters who helped them understand some core aspects of these practices in a more deeper way. Now, coming again to the point about... uh, Tantra and uh, Shiva, Kali and these deities misinterpretation. A common term that is thrown around uh, heavy metal circles or in Western occult circles is the left-hand path. And the left-hand path is, more often than not, is associated with Satanism or Luciferianism and uh, such things. But have you ever wondered where this term even came from? The left-hand path is basically the invention of theosophist Madame Blavatsky. This is at least a basic theory that uh, scholars who have worked with uh, the misinterpretation and misconceptions about Tantra, they have found this out. So it is said that when Blavatsky came to uh, the East in her time, she too came here with her own inherent uh, Abrahamic mindset. And so whatever she saw um, in front of her, she obviously interpreted, or I shall say, misinterpreted, with her own paradigm, and then she noticed Tibetan Buddhist practice, and uh, she thought that that was sorcery. And they, um, those practitioners, even though they may have tried to explain the philosophy and the practices of their path to Blavatsky, I think that when a person has this kind of block, when you're only operating with your preconceived notions of something, no matter how much you are informed or you are told about what this thing in reality is, I personally think it's, it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. So this was the problem with theosophists and orientalists, and then they created this term left-hand path. which. Became synonymous with black magic, the devil worship, and so and so things. so um, the mythologist and uh, scholar Ben Joffe, he also delved into these uh, topics, and specifically, I am very much indebted to his research of uh, blavatsky 's connections to uh, this early misinterpretation of Tantra and left hand path. so I would like to uh, quote a passage that he wrote in his blog, uh, Perfumed Skull. So he writes, As indigenous Asian Tantric ideas have migrated out of their native contexts and have been appropriated and reimagined by outsiders, the Hindu Tantric distinction of left-hand versus right-hand practices has come to take on great meaning for Western Neo-Tantric practitioners. The title left-hand path derives from the Hindu term Vama Marga, a word that is supposed to refer to Indian tantric specialists who historically emphasized the actual consuming of impure substances, the actual frequenting of channel grounds, the engaging in actual sex with physical consorts, and the actual breaking of social taboos and flouting of social mores. The left-hand path in Western esoteric contexts emerges out of very different histories and has very different aims and orientations to Indo-Tibetan tantra. Left and path discourse in Western esotericism is often connected with Satanism, Luciferianism, black magic, and ideas about radical autonomy, counterculturalism, self-reliance, and empowerment. The extent to which Western left and path's anti mainstream heavy metal diabolism and counterculture rebellion or deviance is at all comparable to the orientations of tantric saints who Though they were subversive and oppositional, still operated in contexts where Tantra was mainstreams remains open to question. So basically, the term Vama Marga in its original Indian context, although Ben Joffe uses the term in a more Hindu context, but Vama Marga is not just limited to the Hindu Tantric system itself, it goes beyond that. So Vama Marga could mean different things, the word Vama also means left, also means a consort, a shakti, it could mean different things and as uh, the Ben Joffrey quote said the Vama Marga in fact is a very higher pinnacle of tantric system and not all tantra is necessarily Vama Marga and there are distinctions that are indeed made in there. So the whole practice of Vama Marga is for higher adepts who have basically achieved a more solid level of meditation in their Preliminary stages of practices and who are adepts at a specific practice that finally breaks through all our habitual patterns or habitual tendencies, which is why you could see the mention of impure substances or living in cremation grounds or engaging in antinomian behavior. But these things are not done as a rebellion to society, which perhaps in the Western context, LHP might be associated with, or they do not have anything to do with Satanism or Luciferianism, which in a way is also a rebellion, rebellion against Christianity, rebellion against the Western Abrahamic path in general. And although Satanism, Luciferianism may have their own techniques of meditation or practices, That way of LHP is completely different from what the Hindu or Buddhist tantrics espoused. So the whole idea about practitioners in India or Tibet who dwell in dangerous locations or who challenge themselves uh, with the notions of the pure and impure, that is more to do with understanding the nature of phenomena itself. That does not deal with a rebellion that is more aimed at a mundane thing in life it can also be seen as rebellion but it's more like a rebellion against the whole belief that reality as such that appears to us is true is inherent is inherently existing so both hindu and buddhist tantrics in their own paradigm in their own metaphysical paradigm have worked through this understanding when they approach what we call as rama so indulging in these a seemingly antinomian behavior is a path, a very higher meditative path, which again can only be expounded by a very qualified guru. And it has nothing to do with the Western misinterpretation of LHP, especially when I see in the metal circles when Kali is being fused with Lilith or Shiva is fused with Lucifer, it serves no purpose whatsoever. And I'm quite glad that there are bands like Cult of Fire, and uh, I have also had the honor of working with them, that they chose to represent uh, Tantra, Indian Tantra, in its own pure way, without any mixing. And this is how we must approach an individual tradition. Indians, too, are to be blamed, because in India, too, unfortunately, as I was saying earlier in my podcast, under the British influence or due to the general mainstream religious discourse, which is the Bhakti movement, the general Vedic approach, which approaches things in a more uh, hierarchical caste-based system and uh, ritually pure and morally ethical system. That also started denigrating Tantra, uh, because Tantra to these traditions also appeared uh, as an outcast. Uh, They also perhaps view Tantra traditions in the same way as how Western Abrahamic um, or colonial people, when they came to India, they saw it in the first way. So in India too, unfortunately, the practice of Tantra or the outlook of Tantra in general society, specifically the more North Indian society, has become quite denigrated. Because uh, they also believed in the misinterpretation that Tantra is nothing but lower class of black magic also because unfortunately in india we have a lot of uh, charlatans who masquerade their uh, lowly practices as tantra and they claim to give solutions to different problems in life you know like getting a wife or winning over somebody or even going even beyond that to even kill people so so-called ritual murder and a lot of such cases are reported in our newspapers, and people even call tantrics as witch doctors. This is an official Indian media term. So it's, it's a big shame, because this is not what Tantra is representing. But in the country of its own origin, unfortunately due to different influences, Tantra has been del- relegated into a class of black magic. But we need to go further beyond, and we need to investigate into the actual traditions of Tantra, uh, the actual guru based lineages, which have maintained the pure aspect of uh, the soteriology, the metaphysics, the ritual aspects, and I will touch upon these subjects in my upcoming podcast. So for now, I leave you with uh, this particular idea, and I hope that you will drop your feedback, and I hope to hear more. Uh, from my listeners and i would like them to tell me what more they want to hear but in my upcoming podcast i will expound a little bit more on uh, some core uh, philosophies history and how the genesis of tantra in both the hindu and buddhist systems appeared. so i wish you all a great evening and uh, i hope to hear from you goodbye and take care